The optimist in me says we're going to get much more effective treatments from cancer and other horrible diseases by co-designing with the AI. We're going to find ways to capture carbon, to clean our rivers, to solve a lot of the climate problems that we're facing. The slightly anxious David is also thinking, yeah, but this is moving so fast that there's nobody saying, hang on, do we want to go this far? Hang on, there's no stop button. Welcome to the Beyond Speaking podcast from Premier Speakers Bureau, featuring in-depth conversations with the world's most in-demand keynote speakers. Today, I'm excited to welcome David Rowan. He's the founding editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine's UK edition. In the past year, he spent time with the founders of WhatsApp, LinkedIn, Google, and Spotify, and he's written regular columns in GQ, The Times, and Guardian. He's an expert on AI and innovation, which we'll definitely get into here, as well as climate tech and health tech. Um, so David, thank you for joining us. And so first question is, you say you love to ask the annoying questions. Where does that come from? I think, Brian, I've just realized what I do. So I've always been a journalist editing magazines or parts of newspapers. But I think now I'm a journalist with actually a better business model because I'm using those nosy questions. I'm asking people impossible, difficult, probing questions, um, but they're mostly startup founders or people trying to spin out lab research. And I'm seeing if they're likely to make it or fail. So I'm doing a lot of early stage investing, particularly in climate tech and health tech and AI. And it keeps you on your toes. It helps you understand the brutal reality of competitive innovation. You know, what's likely to make it from the concept to something that's going to affect millions of businesses. What are the keys to making innovation last? So, Brian, I'm an optimist. Lots of journalists are cynics. I don't think like that. I get excited in a childlike way about something new. But in particular for me, it's the intellectual challenge about what this new technology is going to mean for politics, for competitive aspects to business, for the culture, for regulators. And the beautiful thing is we're still at the very early stages of those exponential innovation curves for lots of industries, for genomics and healthcare, for quantum computing, for the way our brains are now being read so that the interface knows what we're thinking. Mm -hmm. And the doubling and doubling that Moore's Law gave us is happening in all these fields. And it forces us to think about where things could be really soon, but that we can't imagine happening yet. And if you see what's happening with generative AI, Early 2023, nobody was really taking it seriously. Middle of 2023, everybody's an expert. Everybody's playing with chat GPT or making images with mid-journey. And, you know, you can see two, three, four years ago that that was going to happen. You could see 10, 20 years ago when there were the early chatbots that were not very human, but, you know, they were using technology that was trying to learn voice recognition, language prediction patterns. You just project forwards and those doubling and doubling curves show you where there are going to be huge trillion dollar businesses. And we're going through a bunch of those at the moment. And for me, it's exciting, not simply as an economic opportunity, 
but as a way of transforming education, as a way of making us healthier because we're able to monitor the signals coming from our body in real time, as a way of outsourcing all those mundane tasks that we have in our day-to-day life. And I'm hanging out with people who are using generative AI to write their sales emails, to flirt on Tinder without having to think of clever answers. And you just know that the stage after that will be an automation of so many things that we think of as deeply human, which has, you know, implications about what it is to be a person, you know, what our brains are meant to be for if you no longer have to recall, if you no longer have to write. Mm. But it also means that if you're running an organization, a big business that's been making profits quarter by quarter the old way, you've really got to be ready to rethink everything, even if it's not comfortable. And I come from a newspaper background. I used to edit newspapers which had classified ad sections this big, and nobody around me could imagine anything different. You can't really avoid the internet, even if you don't want it. If you are in, I don't know, defense tech, you know that machine learning AI is changing the nature of conflict. You know, the drones that we're seeing in Ukraine with super advanced machine vision. You know, this is the new way of conducting conflict. When there's an election now, it's the bot armies at scale customizing propaganda to make you personally persuaded based on your own prejudices, based on your own biases, because the network knows who you are. Now, I think in general, this can benefit us all. This can you know, raise the wealth of nations. Nobody regrets that time when there were typing pools of hundreds of secretaries just employed to type. Nobody wants to go back at scale to working in agriculture. We like having choices. But I think what these technologies are going to enable is us to pursue the higher level tasks if we can outsource a lot of the basic tasks. But then the question is, how we can make sure we're training the next generation to be adaptable, to be agile, and in this new way, in this new definition, to be creative. Well, speaking of which, you know, training that that next generation, I mean, the first generation you have to train is your own. So let's say, let's say you're an executive, you're a smart, successful person, but this is really new to you. So you're you're talking to an audience of leaders, executives, whoever it may be, and you're saying, like, where does that person start on their own journey when it comes to AI, chat, GPT, everything else? Play. Start by playing. It's amazing how resilient, how adaptable we are when we're lost in the flow, when we're in the moment. And I don't think it's a surprise that a lot of the technologies we've seen as transformative began life in the gaming world. You know, virtual currencies, gaming world. Digital identities, gaming world. Metaverse, gaming world. Because when you play and you have a lot of talent coming together to code things that help you play in a way that reflects your identity, your desires, your wish to have higher status in the game, a lot of that translates to the real world. So 
If you are a leader, the easiest way in is to just take some time out and log on to Midjourney and play with some of the images. Play with some of those voice AIs. Don't think, where's this going to affect our bottom line? You don't know. There's a chapter in my book about proper innovation um, where I looked at Autodesk, the US software company that became big 30 years ago when it made software that you bought in a box. It was CD-ROMs and you know you spent $1,000 on it. It was AutoCAD that helped designers and architects. And that company has stayed relevant now when you don't buy software in a box. You stream software. You don't buy it. You subscribe to it. Mm -hmm. It interacts with data points per second. One of the reasons I think they've hung on is because they devote a chunk of their revenue each year for stuff that is playing that doesn't have to raise a profit and loss. They, when I went to see them, had a pier in San Francisco packed with robots and 3D printers and games, and there were artists, paid fellowships, and anybody from the company could come in there and see what it was like working with a robot dog. And it was to get people inside the organization understanding how creative people were starting to use software in new ways. And one of the projects they had was, what if, as you're designing a running shoe, the AI would suggest alternatives? The next stroke of your pencil could take you in this direction. And they called it generative design. And so it allowed you to simulate in real time a thousand different versions of that aircraft seat or that running shoe. And there was no business behind it. It was just, let's see. But they found that the people using the software with the AI working with them were much more creative, worked faster, were prouder of their results. And they started shipping it inside products, which of course gives them a moat. It gives them an edge. It creates a billion dollar revenue opportunity they weren't looking for. So executives, step out of your comfort zone. Do something one day this month that is not familiar. Go to a crypto conference where you'll see how people talk a different language. Go to a human rights event where you'll see how encryption and secure communication has a whole other meaning. Go watch gamers play and see how engaged they are in that metaverse of their game. And think, where does this take our customer? Where does this take our product three, four, five years from now? Because once a tech is out there, you don't control where it's going to go, but it can be universal. When it, I know you've mentioned a few different things here. What are you most excited about when it comes to AI? I spend a lot of my time with health tech and climate tech entrepreneurs. And if you're trying to build a business creating new drugs, if you're trying to find new ways to take carbon out of the system, these are hugely complicated scientific journeys with regulators having to approve and you've got to raise enough capital to build the lab. If you can simulate a lot of this work in the computer, 
and a super powerful computer with AI working with you, that can accelerate things. So the optimist in me says we're going to get much more effective treatments from cancer and other horrible diseases by co-designing with the AI. We're going to find ways to capture carbon, to clean our rivers, to solve a lot of the climate problems that we're facing. The slightly anxious David is also thinking, yeah, but this is moving so fast that there's nobody saying, hang on, do we want to go this far? Hang on, there's no stop button. And my worries are, firstly, it's very expensive to build these large language models to develop the infrastructure for AI. And at the moment, it's a few big monopoly tech companies that are trying to own this whole terrain. And I think this is too important to allow it to be a couple of monopoly companies dominating because that will not be fair to the rest of the economy. Mm. Um, and secondly, this tech moving so fast that not just smarter than us, but it's working out where humans are in. And you know, there are lots of thought experiments in the AI world, such as you tell the AI to take pollution out of this lake or to take carbon out of the system. And you give it the freedom to use its resources. And at some stage, it decides that the human is the problem. And logically, you know, the human needs to be taken out of the equation. And, you know, if we get to that sort of stage where we haven't had that ethical conversation, where there isn't an open way to understand what's in the code, that black box that we have no access to, there's all sorts of risks. And the you know, the lower lying risks are the biases of the AIs that are probably going to stop certain people getting work or that are going to lead certain people to the wrong medical diagnosis because of the prejudice built up in the code. Um, but more seriously, there's questions about, you know, the existential nature of this code. When you start allowing weaponized drones to decide what their targets are going to be, where, hey, we yeah. need that conversation. <laughs> yeah. And obviously that's been going a long time. That's everything from like Thanos to uh to Terminator. I mean, those those uh things have been going on about who makes what decision. Um but that's and- why movies are so effective because they address our fears even ahead of those technologies going mainstream. So we should probably if we want to have a good ethical discussion about, you know, where tech's gonna harm us in ten years. We should go to the movies together, Brian, and we just we should see. There's an awful lot of movies about you know the threat from China and the way they think there in this kind of multi-state, or the threat to the environment from these you know unstoppable firestorms. That I think is where our deeper anxieties lie. And how do you? I guess that that's one of those things. Like, how do we address that? I don't know if that's even a thing that we have here, but. When you have, you know, whether it's corporate leaders who are make up a lot of the audience of this podcast, or if it's just, you know, sort of the people in society in general, I know we're we're on different sides of of an ocean here, you know, having this conversation. I mean, those are obviously really big questions that that kind of affect all of us. We're connected, like you're in the next sofa to me. It doesn't feel like we're far away. And I think the risk for the corporate leader is that there's some kid in a bedroom in Bangkok, Thailand. He's 14 and 
you know, he's found a way to build code that could eradicate your competitive advantage, no matter what you're doing. And it kind of forces you to keep alert, to not relax too much. And, you know, I travel all the time because if I go and see what startups are doing in Tel Aviv or Abu Dhabi or, you know, Mexico, um, there's always different assumptions and different rules. And the entrepreneurs that tend to make it are those that break rules or create new rules before people are ready to accept those new rules. Um, but those disruptive ways of thinking can go around the world like a virus. How can uh, bigger companies act more like startups? So the leaders listening to this might not like it, but give away some of your power to your team. Top down doesn't work anymore because it's a battle for talent. And when you've hired the great people, you want to get their best performance. And what I'm seeing more and more is organizations that delegate power to the people at every level of an organization are the most future fit. Because, you know, the people on the front line are seeing what's happening in the market. They're getting feedback from the customer. The people in your small office in a different state, they're developing relationships and getting feedback that you don't have at HQ. So how do you build a structure that keeps you alert, that keeps you listening to everybody in the organization? I've got a case study in my book of a games company in Helsinki in Finland that's probably Europe's most successful games company. It's called Supercell. And the founder often talks about wanting to be the world's least powerful CEO. His name's Ilka Bananen. And he sees his job as just hiring great people, creating an office environment where they'll do their best work, but letting them decide what teams they're part of, who they work with, and if they're working on a project where they're starting to get restless and bored and it's not getting the feedback in the user tests that they like, they have the power to cancel the project and to find something new to work on without his permission. And it's a really hard corporate concept. But a lot of the tools we have are commodified. Everybody has access to you know the Slack-type software to 3D printing, to manufacturing. It's not distribution. It's the quality and energy and creative thoughtfulness of your team. And how do you get the most creative team? Make them love their work. Make them feel they're working on something that matters, but they're being listened to. So I had probably the most optimistic job in journalism. I was running a magazine, which is about the people building the future, not just in science and tech, but in business models, in culture, in architecture. So Wired was the key to a magic kingdom of people who believed in stuff that didn't yet exist, but were convinced in some flawed way that they could build it. And it meant I was constantly coming across people who thought in different ways. And I loved bringing them together so that the architect using a new kind of 3D printer 
could meet the human rights activist or the science professor. And I, I started with dinner salons. I thought if you can bring 15, 16 people around a table to have a deep conversation, that would be fascinating because ideas, innovation happens between disciplines. It happens where they collide. And then I thought, well, that was great. But what if you get them to commit to a bit more time? So I started bringing 50 people together in the carnival in northern Brazil, in Japan, in Iceland. You know, you'd go inside a volcano, a dormant volcano, but you still go 120 <laughs> yards deep into a volcano. And it's mesmerizing. People relax and they start opening up and being themselves. And the conversations were just terrific. And so I thought it's not a business side of me. It's like a, a fun, the pro bono side of me. I'm going to keep bringing people together. So I've been running dinners in about 19 cities. I don't go to them all. Um, five weekend retreats this year. And, and what I didn't realize was becomes a super trusting group. And once you have trust, amazing things happen. People start investing in each other's businesses or becoming coaches to each other or helping deal with the tough times. That turns out to be a really effective starting point for building a, an investment fund. So we've done a community health tech investment fund and now a climate tech investment fund, you know, very small on the scheme of things, like a $10 million one. But the trust that we start with leads to amazing access and deal flow. And the people in the community have put in the money into the fund. So I'm not a corporate finance person. I'm a community person, a curious journalist person. But wow, it's a great way to start working out where the future is being built. Well, thank you, David, so much for for coming on and sharing uh, your your viewpoint and your views um, uh, about you know what's coming with AI, uh, how we can approach it, uh, both from a business standpoint, a social standpoint, and uh, also I love the last part of just being able to build those relationships. So, David, thank you so much for for coming on, for being that curious journalist, and uh, sharing your viewpoints here on the Beyond Speaking podcast. Thanks for your curious questions. They were great questions, Brian. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. To learn more about today's guest, visit premierspeakers.com. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen.